Hello, and welcome to episode six of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. I am your host, Jeff Zachman, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Dangerous Exponents is our effort to shed light on various aspects of the coronavirus pandemic using our analytical techniques honed from other sorts of journalism and and analytical pursuits. Uh, this is now episode six, as I mentioned, so we've got five episodes uh, that you can check out at dangerousexponents.com. We also are still looking for some feedback. We know some of you have yet to fill out our survey. Trust me, it's quick and painless, so you can find that either at dangerousexponents.com or uh, on my Twitter, Tennis Abstract. So hopefully you can give us some feedback. We'd love to know what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to hear less of, unless what you'd like to hear less of is me, then we're gonna have a little bit of a problem. So let's dive in. Episode six on super spreader events. Uh, a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the key exponents in the pandemic, uh, R0, RT, and K, we got into the topic of super spreaders, as in the people who spread infection much more than others. And there is a pretty wide difference between the people who spread a lot and the people who spread not at all. Uh, but we want to focus more specifically, but relatedly on super spreader events. So these these specific events that caused a, a disproportionate amount of spread of the pandemic. And let's jump right in, Carl. The, the first big one that I want to talk about is this Biogen conference in Boston back in February. So before the lockdown, before we, we knew how bad this could be. And that's now tied to over 300,000 cases, uh, according to a paper that recently came out. So. So Carl, how do we even make sense of that? I mean, are, uh, can we blame like, I don't know, 10% of the pandemic on this Biogen conference? Yeah, it's a really hard question and maybe especially hard. Here's my standard disclaimer for two people who aren't biologists or, or epidemiologists, but uh, are just using our analytical approach from other endeavors, as you mentioned here. It, it does boggle the mind, but then the element of time comes in. And this was just so early in the pandemic, especially in the US, that maybe the numbers really, really do work out that you could get to this many cases, which also raises the question, would, would this have happened anyway? And was it just a question of which of the events that brought a lot of people together at that time was the one that ended up seeding so many others around the world? And I think that's a question that that we're we're not like learning a lot about in our own research for this this topic uh, because we tend to just hear about the ones that can be shown to have spread the virus quickly and widely and not the ones that could have but maybe didn't. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a tricky thing because sure um, those three hundred and thirty five thousand cases that we can trace back to biogen some of those people probably would have gotten the virus some other way um hopefully not all of them maybe not all of them but let's let's talk about the numbers involved i thought this was super interesting uh, according to this paper it is uh, i didn't jot, jot down the title but it's in science magazine uh there were 100 cases that can be traced using genome sequencing so it's pretty pretty solid uh, reliable way of doing this 100 cases you can trace back to the conference, and that ended around March 1st. And then two months and nine days later, uh, at the end of the study period for this paper, they found 50,000 cases 
that could be traced back to Biogen. And then more recently, November 1st, there are 300, that's the 335,000 number. And I mean, these sound like enormous numbers and they are enormous numbers, but this is where the exponents come into play, where the exponents get so scary to go from, uh, to go from a hundred cases on March 1st to 50,000 cases on May 9th is if my math is right, an RT of 1.3, which that doesn't sound that scary anymore, given what we've seen in, I mean, we, we're used to an RT of 1.3 and then the 50,000 to 335,000 in almost six months, that's an RT of 1.06. So that's almost an acceptable level of spread according to how we normally look at the the, the RT numbers. So, I mean, the, the real calamity here was the original 100 cases and then not some extremely severe form of lockdown to, 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 to clamp down on those 100 cases. So, Carl, I'm wondering if your intuition is in line with mine here. If the problem is the 100 cases, I mean, if if somehow something different had happened at this Biogen conference, like maybe there'd been food poisoning and kept people in their rooms or more events had been outside or, I mean, Boston in February, of course, there'd be tons of things outside. Um, but if something had happened where there were 80 cases from the conference instead of 100 cases from the conference, could would that 20% reduction apply to these later huge numbers as well? Would that have meant like 10,000 fewer coronavirus cases on May 9th? Yeah, that's, that's where it starts to boggle my mind because there are so many other parallel events that are presumably much smaller, but also harder to track. We, d we don't have a unique uh, sequence that we can track it to. Like in this case, the, it, it makes for such a, a sort of uh, credible analysis because there really were just a couple of isolated cases with that exact sequence in France that almost certainly, you know, couldn't have been the cause of, of all the downstream cases in the U.S. So uh, th there's so much uncertainty and there's probably there's probably some offsetting decision somewhere along the way that that someone else made that was kind of random and, and not even because of the pandemic that caused some other event to not have 100 cases, but to have 80 or to have people stay closer. In fact, what seems really key is not just the initial number, but also that it was among a group that generally is traveling widely and was able to, to bring those the virus with them all over the country and eventually maybe in the second and third generation around the world, whereas they looked at other uh, cases that maybe had some other events that had similar number of cases, but involved people who were close together and stayed close together and didn't spread more widely. So that, that really seems like the combination that was so dangerous in this particular case. And um, then there's the combination of the, the really good uh, sequencing information and tracing that um, makes it the one we know about. And that leads to a question I didn't think we'd get to until later in the episode, but one that I think is is really important. Because this happened early in the pandemic, this this was, retrospectively, this was a calamity. I mean, a lot could have been prevented if a few of these early events hadn't happened. I mean, assuming there weren't replacement other events, and maybe there would have been. But I mean, we can we can trace a lot of damage back to these individual events. And they happened at a time when people weren't terribly worried about this. I mean, we can argue about whether uh, people should have reacted faster. I'm sure next time there's some virus popping up in a far-flung corner of the world, we are going to react differently and faster, even if it's just people individually choosing not to travel. But uh, 
sometimes you hear about epidemiologists especially saying that things are never going back to normal like this this is this has generated a new normal where maybe we'll always be wearing masks maybe we will be traveling less um maybe we'll need to install better ventilation in certain indoor spaces like there will be permanent changes even if we reach a level of herd immunity through vaccination and we don't worry about this specific virus so is that one of your takeaways too carl from from these early super spreader events like if if this happened when we when we had no reason really to be prepared for it like even when this is over is there going to be another biogen conference are there going to be more giant football matches with people gathering from around the world i mean do we go back to normal after this i think maybe we shouldn't but probably we will Partly because what's what's so telling about the examples in that paper, Biogen Conference versus Nursing Home, and, and also some of the populations downstream of the Biogen Conference, like a homeless shelter, the, the people who are most affected aren't the ones who would have to change their behavior. I mean, Biogen has been affected because it's now become synonymous for this conference and, and the effects. And so there's a cautionary tale of the way that we when there is this combination of gathering a lot of people and then bad luck and then good data that, you know, then you're, you, you're always going to be associated with that. So I guess that's some disincentive, but I think generally a lot of the people who were involved in similar events might never know they were, might've never even known they had COVID. So I, I'm not sure the incentives are aligned to change things as much as possibly we should be when we're looking at these events that do bring in people, especially young, healthy, very mobile people from lots of different places together in close quarters. That's, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. That's uh, certainly there's some misaligned incentives and maybe the solution for Biogen is just to give their conference a different name next time or have a, have a subsidiary put on the conference and have it be essentially the same thing. Um, but should there should there be public regulations then instead like if it's an issue of of misaligned incentives i mean that's usually where there's some value in in government stepping in so i mean one example that we've touched on a little bit is is how how sweden has reacted to the pandemic and i mean people focus on how sweden didn't lock down the way that other countries did but at the same time Sweden kept a lid on public gatherings um, for a long time when other countries weren't doing that. So is that something that will take a extremely long time to go back to normal? I mean, will, will governments prevent, say, big football matches, big tennis tournaments, these big gatherings of tens of thousands of people from returning to 100% capacity? I mean, is that, a, is that a reasonable way of handling the misaligned incentives in trying to stop whatever the next pandemic is? I think it's somewhat reasonable, but really hard to defend politically and maybe on the merits, depending where you come down on preventative medicine, it's just really hard when there isn't a pandemic raging. I mean, so much of what we've seen about political response to this one is, okay, things are bad enough now that we can, that we can like actually pull off this, this next regulation and very reactive. And I think we've seen based on places where things have opened up, even if maybe they shouldn't have based on case counts, that there's a lot of pent up appetite for gathering, like with football 
in the U.S. So th that's that's what I'm concerned about is that I think ra while there are some people who maybe are never going to feel comfortable doing that again, that there are a lot of people and possibly, if not more people, enough people to fill stadiums who are really excited to to get back to them. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do you think maybe in some countries or, or some places it, it would be more plausible than others, places where we've seen more cooperation between the public and government in, in stopping the spread? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I think a, a really key question to answer that we're approaching an answer to, but I think the science needs to be even more solid, that we seem pretty confident that super spreader events don't happen outdoors or they don't happen entirely outdoors. I mean, there's this... Um, open source database put together by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that lists over a thousand super spreader events from around the world. And one of the things it tracks for those super spreader events is whether it was indoor, outdoor, or some combination. And no, no single event on that list was purely outdoors. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Another Another early super spreader event that uh, that happened about the same time, I think a, a little bit earlier than the Biogen conference, was this football game in or soccer match in Milan. Uh, and I think we all know that northern Italy was hit very hard by the pandemic early, early in the process. And reading about it now, it sounds very similar. I mean, there's to Biogen, there's people traveling from different places. There's people tr going straight back home afterward. Um, so it, it's a mix of people from, uh, from different social groups that are going to spread the disease geographically widely, as well as, as, as fairly densely within the local population. So these sound similar, but I'm assuming the Biogen conference was almost 100% inside, again, Boston in February. But the soccer match is an outdoor soccer match, right? It's mostly outdoor. And yes, people are packed in like sardines in the stadium, but um, they're also going to pubs after, they're maybe gathering in friends' homes, they're maybe staying in packed hotels, people coming in from out of town. I mean, do you accept that that there can be a massive concerning super spreader event that was outdoors? Or do you think it's more to do with these other ancillary events that were indoors? Yeah, I mean, if you look at that database, there's a lot of events, including the soccer match you're talking about, that are marked indoor-outdoor. And another major one was the... Um, the White House event for the you know new, new Supreme Court justice that most people focused on the Rose Garden seating, which was outdoors, but there was also an indoor component. And we don't really know for the people who got infected at that event where it happened. So I think the the conclusion that none of these events were totally outdoors ha has to do partly with it's hard to hold a truly totally outdoors event because somewhere along the way people are going to be indoors, whether it's getting there or, you know, in some some component of the event. Um, but it certainly seems safer to, to hold outdoor events. And, you know, one of the studies that we could probably question the methodology, but there have been studies of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests earlier this year and that they seem to not have sparked uh, big 
big uh, outbreaks in the communities that had the most uh, activity around people gathering outside to protest. And there are probably other factors at play too, but that's one of the indications that maybe people, it, when you really can have people pretty much walking out of their homes or their cars into an outdoor setting and then dispersing, uh, it might be about the closest you can get to a purely outdoor event and that those seem to have been have been safe. So there's, it definitely seems like there's, there's something there. I'm just a little cautious around the, the many events marked as indoor outdoor. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even just thinking about a, a soccer match, setting aside, going to the pub before or after, just I mean, getting, getting snacks on the concourse or being, being in a crowded escalator, getting to your seat. Like you're right. It, there are very few events that are purely outdoor. And that's a good point that a protest or a political rally is, I mean, at least an outdoor political rally is about as close to a purely outdoor event as you can get. I mean, I guess the only thing like that would be an outdoor music festival um, where literally everything is, is outdoors once you're out of your car. Uh, so let's, let's talk about, about these. There's one of the articles that we, we both looked at preparing for this episode talked about uh, President Trump's or just we only don't have to say that for very much longer. That's nice. Um, President Trump's rallies around the country and and indicated five of them, I think, where community spread increased after he stopped there. So, I mean, I don't know how, how do we classify an, an airplane hangar? Most of these rallies were in hangars. Are are hangars indoor or outdoor? Do, do you have a sense of which side of the of the dichotomy they fall on? Yeah, that's that's one of those structures that reminds me of the structures popping up around New York City uh, outside restaurants where uh, they're technically meeting the outdoor dining requirements or at least getting away with it, but they're essentially indoors. Um, yeah, I, I think I think hangers are, are tough because they are giant spaces and potentially there can be a lot of ventilation. Um, so let's let let's <laughs> my guess is if any of these rallies made the um that list that they would be marked as indoor or outdoor right so I, i'm curious what what your intuitions are with this one so so this article slash i don't know if study is the right word it wasn't an academic study this is this was some data journalism uh, usa today looked at i think my count is right it, it counted tw 28 rallies on, on Trump's tour and and focused on five of them where the rate of spread increased in the community after the the rally. And I think it's looking at, at the county level. And so that means five of them, five of them increased, 23 did not. And if you read the article without looking at the numbers, it sounds pretty negative about the rallies and i mean that's reasonable i don't think it's it's responsible to be holding those rallies um but at the same time like there's going to be fluctuation in community spread there's other factors involved like the article mentioned one of the places that the a rally happened was near a college campus where people came back to school approximately the same time so given these numbers 28 rallies five of them resulted in 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 an increased rate of spread does that does that seem like a particularly dangerous thing to you i mean is your intuition similar to mine that 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 seems like no worse than you'd be expected if there was no rally at all yeah i i 
I was not persuaded that the rallies overall led to any spike or that, that there, there would have been fewer cases if they hadn't happened, which I think partly points to it's really hard to tell and there's so many other factors, but par partly also points to the journalistic, the biggest kind of journalistic bias which, in my mind, which is the bias toward your own story. And if you did all that work, I'm not saying this was a conscious bias on the part of the people behind that story, but in my experience, including as the biased person myself producing journalism, once you've settled on a story and done a ton of work for it, you want to produce a story at the end. That's your bias. Um, and that's what it read like to me. Like they expected to find something much bigger. And so they went with what they had. But uh, yeah, it was it was not persuasive. And I think it gets back to one of the points we talked about earlier, which is there's luck involved in which events become super spreader events. And maybe these rallies were okay for other reasons. Maybe it's because people were mostly coming from the community where they were held. So they that contained the spread. Maybe it affected what other people in the community were doing and there, was, there were offsetting effects. But uh, for whatever reason, it seems like these events probably didn't spread the, the virus, even though they certainly could have. Yeah, and the other journalistic bias that I think is related to what you're talking about is 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 the bias towards certain types of scary attention-grabbing headlines. I mean, that, and that's all of our fault for reacting the way we do to certain things. But if you're pitching a story to the editor about Trump's rallies and community spread of coronavirus, then a story that, well, the, the headline, Trump's campaign made stops nationwide, then coronavirus cases surged. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty clear. You can have that headline. I'm not surprised to see that headline in a national newspaper. If the headline was Trump's campaign made stops nationwide, then coronavirus cases fluctuated more or less predictably, then I mean, that's never going to be a headline in a newspaper. I mean, it, that would even be tough to get published in, in, in non-pandemic times in an academic journal. It's just nobody cares about that stuff. I publish stuff like that about tennis and nobody cares about that even more than they normally don't care about other tennis analytics. So that's a big bias. And there have even been studies done on, on the tone of coronavirus cases and it's overwhelmingly negative even when the the topic is um, the, the rate is ebbing or there are certain improvements in the technology, the tone skews tremendously negative. So that's something we all need to adjust for when, when we're reading this stuff. So something else we want to talk about at more of a meta level is the different ways we, we track these events or, or track the super spreading itself. And I mentioned at the outset that the Biogen conference we know what we know due to extensive genome sequencing of people with the or of the virus and people that we know tested positive so as far as i understand the science we can be very confident that the 335,000 cases i mentioned have a lineage that goes back to the biogen conference but the study that you mentioned, Carl, about um, Black Lives Matter protests, uh, the same people did a study on uh, Trump's rally in Tulsa, which was was similarly suspected of being a super spreader event, uh, and also about the, the Sturgis motorcycle rally in South Dakota this summer. Again, the same group did a type of analysis based on cell phone data. So they, they looked at the people who were there, um, 
where they came from, and then they did some uh, some statistical work to figure out what happened in the places they came from. So it's much less precise. Um, not saying it's wrong, but it's a much more approximate activity, and it's 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 given us some conflicting results. So like we say, the Black Lives Matter pr protest, according to this methodology, those didn't cause much spread. Trump's Tulsa rally didn't cause much spread, but according to this approach, the Sturgis motorcycle rally did. It could be linked to 266,000 cases, apparently. Uh, so Carl, what do, you, what do you think about this this method? I mean, is it, we know it's approximate. Is it is it useful enough to to trust these sort of numbers that certain events are are super spreader events and others aren't? Like, what's your take on that? I think we, I, I'd like to see it applied to, to even more, uh, more potential super spreader events. And, you know, I think more generally, my preferred approach would be, can we use this method pretending we don't know about any potential events and surface naturally candidates and then see if there's anything that happened in those places that seems plausible because the current method is like okay we suspect this particular event we're going to really dig into this one and then we're going to report our result and the um the finding for the motorcycle rally that the headline number which as you mentioned taps into another really important source of journalistic bias 266,000 uh very imprecise estimate according to a takedown of the study in slate that you know really zero is a credible estimate as well so that doesn't mean to me that the the method itself can't be useful just that it really needs to be it needs really strong signal to be confident and my guess is if we could apply it to the whole country and to um, the whole period of the pandemic, we might surface some events we, we aren't aware of or, or hadn't been focusing on before. So I, I admire the approach and that, and that it's something they keep working on and publishing. I'd like to see it uh, applied more generally and responsibly. It would also be interesting to see it applied to events where we have the, the genome sequencing information uh, as sort of a a confirmation or a, a check on the method itself. I don't know whether that's possible, what the extent of the uh, the cell phone data they have is, but that would give us something. But as you point out, Carl, I, I love the line in that, in that Slate article you mentioned that the confidence interval is essentially between zero and 450,000. So it leaves something to be desired, definitely. And one of those issues is that it's it's looking at the rate of spread in counties where rally attendees came from. And it, if you think about this at a really, I don't know, grossly stereotyping intuitive level, the sort of people who decide to go to a motorcycle rally in the middle of a pandemic, they're probably more likely to come from places where the other people in those counties also are making riskier decisions. I mean, there's plenty of exceptions to that. Like I say, we're grossly generalizing. Well, I'm grossly generalizing, but it, it, it means there's an almost infinite list of potential confounding variables. And that's something that this kind of analysis, at least at, at this, uh, this high level, isn't gonna be able to touch. So 
that to me these are sort of the the extreme precision and the extreme imprecision approaches to identifying and measuring super spreader events between genome sequencing and and looking at aggregate cell phone data so there's something in the middle which is sort of the workhorse of the of pandemic control which is contact tracing so carl do you get the sense that contact tracing is is doing a good job of unearthing these sort of smaller scale, maybe less predictable, um, less headline grabbing super spreader events? I think there's major selection bias. Contact tracing is basically where the people who have been infected give you um, give you the contact tracer, often working for the government public health department, generally working for the public health department they give you their contacts as they know them and then you contact those people and they get tested and then you find out whether they were infected and there's a lot of even if you have the capacity based both on how many contact tracers you have and how many cases there are how many new cases there are even if you have the capacity to contact everyone not everyone gets back to you sometimes just because that's the nature of the world and sometimes because they're intentionally not getting back to you and so you end up with a system that's going to catch and label super spreader events where people are really cooperative and honest and, and helpful and, and trying to help prevent the spread and, and alert other people that they're at risk of, of being infected and infecting others. And you miss the ones where there either isn't the capacity or people are deliberately blocking the contact tracing. So in the case of that White House event, the White House didn't really trace any contacts and, and kind of prevented that from happening in a, in a systematic way. So I don't think we really know the extent of the spread of that event. We still are able to include it because there was so much publicity around the high profile people who were infected directly. Uh, there was a case of a, of a party for kids in, in a town where uh, there was some evidence that people were deliberately not talking to contact tracers to prevent information from getting out about what happened. So I, I think we uh, potentially, by sort of making these stories into cautionary tales, might dissuade people from cooperating when their cooperation is, is really key to not just finding these events, but potentially also limiting their damage. And I think one key takeaway from that is that the limitations of contact tracing at least the, the sort of things you're talking about where people don't respond honestly or don't respond at all, they're non-random. I mean, if if those limitations were random, that maybe some people just never answered the phone because they were too busy or, I don't know, some people had bad memories or in, unintentionally misled the contact tracers, then maybe it would all come out in the wash. And if, if a super spreader event ended up infecting 10 people, maybe the contract tracers would only figure out about seven of them, but they'd still be able to identify the event. But as you say, like th th there's a political aspect to this. I mean, it, it isn't like 70% of the people at the the Rose Garden event were cooperative. It's a, it was just sort of shut down. Um, and then you think about uh, other things that aren't necessarily political. I mean, there's always going to be some political aspect, but I always think about illegal immigrant communities. And these are often communities that uh, have... A, that are living in close quarters, that maybe are working on the black market, so so it's tougher to trace what they're doing during the day, who they're seeing, and they have a very clear incentive not to speak to representatives of the government. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that 
contact tracers aren't being used to identify illegal immigrants and, and deport them. But I can certainly understand if I were an illegal immigrant, I would not trust that to be the case. So this is, in a city like New York, you have a huge population of people who have a very clear incentive not to speak to contact tracers in a very non-random way. And that seems to me to be a major concern that obviously not only affects those communities, although it disproportionately affects those communities, but it also affects everybody else because I mean, virtually everyone is coming into contact with, with illegal immigrants or any other uh, marginalized community you can name on a fairly regular basis, or at least they're, they're two or three steps away from them, which is all it takes in a situation like this. So, Carl, any thoughts on that before I violently segue us to something else? I think that's a great point, and that those are also communities that are likely missed by one more method for tracing infection and potentially identifying super spreader events, which are these cell phone apps, which I think in some countries and maybe some states have been adopted widely enough so that if I've walked past you, Jeff, and later it turns out that I test positive and, and mark that in the app, that you would be notified. But it requires that both both of us are using smartphones and are have the app installed and activated. And I think that will also miss marginalized communities, people who have reason not to trust uh, government officials who are um, who are touting these apps. And, and that, that's just one other point that I wanted to raise here uh, relatedly, which is government officials are in a bind where they are both trying to get the word out to people, hey, don't hold these events that could potentially lead to the spread of the virus and and also cooperate with us if you have held such an event. And also here are events where people have cooperated with us enough that we know now the extent of the spread that we are now going to tout to the media as cautionary tales and maybe persuade other people not to cooperate with us. So, you know, it's often directly from these departments that are getting this information about, let's say, weddings or other events uh, that are then spreading the word about them and potentially uh, sort of punishing the, the people who have cooperated enough to to trace the line of infections two or three generations. Yeah, that that's a good point. It's a almost impossible tightrope to walk. Um, for the public officials trying to to get people to talk and at the same time publicize things properly so uh, the the violent segue i promised was something that might turn out to be the biggest super spreader event of all it's not a single event but but after the initial lockdown in india this is back in march again um there were i don't know hundreds of thousands of, uh, no, millions of migrant workers in India who didn't have jobs in the places they had migrated to. They wanted to go back to their home villages because they would better be able to eat and survive there. So when the lockdown happened, there were all these people who, some of them immediately just started walking home, but the government arranged these trains to take people back home. And they were, t they said some of the right things about social distance, but in practice, they, that didn't really happen. I mean, anyone who's ever been on a train in India knows that's not really practical. So at, at, an, at a national level, I mean, organized by the government were essentially these multi-hour, multi-day incubators for the virus that took them from being an urban problem to being an urban and rural problem all over the country. And 
I mean, one of the things emphasized by some of the coverage of this is that the the people in the government are all upper caste in India. They they don't have a lot of maybe any hands-on experience with the day-to-day experience of migrant workers and what was going to happen when they, they put together these trains. But, so I'm, I'm curious, like, how how much are are these some of these super spreader events inevitable? I mean, I, I realize that's a, a pretty broad question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where to, how to handle that exactly. But the idea being, if you have so many people who are going to live together somehow or other, especially in countries that, that where there's a lot of poor people, I mean, it's not easy to just sit in your apartment and watch Netflix for, for these people, obviously. So, we focus on on the trains, which were a problem, but the alternative was people staying in these extremely dense urban areas, probably in in overcrowded apartments and so on. Uh, in a situation like that, how do you avoid super spreading happening? I mean, is, the, is is there a way? Yeah, I mean, this is really where the pandemic being woven into the overall public health situation and, and economic situation of a country is is unavoidable and in, in fact what the article i think we both read from the new york times was describing was a predicament for, for the people themselves who chose to to get on these trains a predicament where they were often facing starvation uh if they stayed because they they had no no work and no way to to get more food whereas if they could get home to their villages then they they had a support system because there there wasn't another support system in place and you know in in so many parts of the world for so many people these lockdowns have been a request or a command to give up their their livelihood not to mention their their other parts of their support system and and not necessarily getting something that makes that possible. And certainly not getting something in return that is is equal, but maybe not even getting something that that sustains them at all. So, if you if you give a millions of people the the individual decision of do I do I try to stay alive or not, they they're going to choose survival, and that can have major ripple effects on on a public health system. On the other hand, there have been other very poor countries that have largely avoided uh, the the rate of cases of India. I think India can look much worse than it is from a per capita basis just because of how much bigger the population is than, let's say, the U.S. Like, if you see the number of cases plotted on both countries next to each other, it's very misleading. But, you know, I think one thing we're going to talk about on a future episode is what lessons can we learn from different countries? And I keep coming back to luck and timing. Like, Maybe um, if if the government had waited a little bit longer or changed a few details about these 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 trains and and had more of them and made distancing more possible, actually done the testing they promised, that maybe that would have had an enormous effect because of the way one infection can eventually breed thousands. Yeah, and again, you come back to the difficult question of if this hadn't happened, what else would have happened, and. and Migrant workers in India don't go home very often, but they do sometimes go home. So some of these people would have gone home anyway. Uh, maybe the spread would have taken longer to reach some of these villages, but maybe it would have eventually. So maybe there would have been less immediate stress on the health system, but maybe some of the infections would have happened just on a different time scale. It's, it's 
it's really difficult to know. But yeah, so concur, Carl. I look forward to a future episode talking about the luck or whatever other factors make certain places so hard hit and other places not. That's definitely one of the, the most fascinating things about the spread of, of this pandemic. So as we, we hit the 40 minute mark, it feels like that's a, a good time to wrap up. Carl, before we officially say goodbye, any final thoughts on super spreader events? Well, I think as you've noted, these can be relatively small events and we don't really have a name in between. Actually, I can't think of any other name for an event where someone gets infected. And maybe this is diluting the conversation around these events where something like the Biogen conference or the motorcycle rally, if more evidence emerges that narrows that confidence interval, um, would qualify. And then something like the main wedding that is often used as a cautionary tale, which has been traced to, I think, a couple hundred cases, has a different name, which is then different from an event that ends up leading to 10 infections or something. And all of these events and, and labeling individual people as super spreaders, and uh, I don't know how helpful it is because it all sounds scary and somehow like it's it's everyone's fault. And we have a lot of potential dangerous events that either don't lead to infection or we never find out lead to infection. Um, so just, just wondering if we could come up with better names or if we're just stuck with this one. Well, it is funny that the answer is right there in the name. I mean, we're calling everything a super spreader event, but super spreader sounds like a kludge when you needed something more extreme than spreader. So why don't we call things spreader events? It's right there. Um, but it's, it, it, that is, that is such a key point, Carl, that there's so much luck involved, um. And those of us who are being careful, like we kind of want to read about Trump's rallies turning out to be super spreader events. I mean, we don't want people to get sick, but I mean, there there is a moral component there. Um, but it does to, to your to your main point, it does seem like there needs needs to be some some better differentiation between like the, the really calamitous super spreader events and children's parties that caused five more infections I mean, we don't want either of them to happen but it seems a bit strange to throw them all in the same in the same database and to treat them in the same way so it's it, it's a it's a key thing i mean it, even the sturgis rally if you take the lower end of of the numbers being thrown around not the 266,000, but uh through contact tracing i think the, the south dakota officials say that they've traced i don't know a few hundred cases i think directly to the rally it's not very many and this was a rally attended by thousands of people for for many days. So is that even much of a super spreader event? I mean, technically it is if you if if you accept that number in the hundreds. But at the same time, if those people were home, some of them would have gone out to dinner. Some of them would have done other minor irresponsible things. And maybe there would have been the same amount of spread from that number of people. So just because you can call it an event, um, you can lump together all those interactions in one single event doesn't make it as dangerous as it sounds. Again, assuming the 300 number and not the 266,000 number, but, but it's messy. And sometimes the, the scientific nomenclature like super spreader events um, spreads into the public discourse and we don't really handle it the right way. I mean, or, or we can't trust everyone who reads it to understand it in the non-moralistic way it was initially intended. So, 
on that extremely long closing note, we can we can finally say goodbye for this episode. This has been Dangerous Exponents episode six on super spreader events. You can check out all of our previous episodes at dangerousexponents.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract to get updates of future episodes and other Dangerous Exponents related stuff. You can follow Carl at Carl Bialik in case he decides to tweet for us as well. And please, if you listened this far, um, do take a moment and answer our, our questionnaire. It is brief and painless and will be very helpful to us going forward. We will appreciate it. So, Carl, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.